can hear. So I'm really wired for time today. I think all of you heard the announcement last week while I was in Florida as to why I was absent. For those of you who were not, one of our ministers, Mr. Randy Payne of St. Petersburg, Florida, was on his way home from work about a week ago last Thursday. He was on a two-lane road riding his motorcycle, which he often changed off with his wife when she had need of the family car, and apparently someone with a flatbed rig had left a truck halfway into the lane of traffic without lights, reflectors, or flares. And he was coming along in his motorcycle just at a moderate speed. I understand some people have actually swerved in their automobiles, narrowly missed the truck, and called the police to report that it was there. And there were skid marks for a few feet, but by the time he saw the truck, he was into it, and he was killed instantly. It uh, severed the aorta, and uh, he died right there within a split second or two or three after striking the truck, and I imagine he never even knew what hit him. I got a telephone call late at night from a lady in the church down in St. Petersburg who asked my wife and me to pray about it. She said that Randy Payne was critically injured. Well, we did, and then before that had quite gotten finished, we got a call from uh, Mr. Charles Kimbrough, who was the minister in Atlanta in the general area down there, and had known Randy, had worked with him, I think, for about eight months in St. Petersburg at one time. And Mr. Kimbrough was up, I think, in Indiana, where he was a salesman and travels about, and he told me that Randy Payne was dead. Well, the next morning, I contacted Mrs. Payne, who you can well understand. I think she probably is in her very early 30s. I think Randy is only about three years older than my oldest son. Uh, was owner of his own business, which was measuring and striping and painting parking lots around the greater St. Pete Clearwater area. They have five little children, ranging from nine years to one and a half. I don't know how prepared she or the children, or Randy, might have been for running into the back end of a semi-truck. I do know how prepared Randy was for the resurrection. I'd like to talk about that today because the Bible talks a great deal about being ready. And if there is ever a time for which you can ever prepare it is the totally unexpected, the unexpected, the accident, the uh, will-to-wisp, the sudden airplane crash into your home where you're sitting watching television. Uh, the people who down there at Tampa St. Pete some few years ago were driving along over the bridge, and all of a sudden, without them knowing it, a big ship comes along, smashes into the bridge, and a whole busload, if you recall, if you can ever remember going across big, tall bridges and thinking, I hope the bridge doesn't collapse, and imagining with your fears, I suppose, of falling from high places, what it must have been like for several automobiles and a bus to just suddenly see the bridge do this and to go off and to feel yourself falling and plunging into the water, and boom, you're dead. You can't ever prepare for that. Now, lying in the hospital at a great age, knowing that you're under sedation, knowing that you have undergone an operation, knowing that you're in your 70s or 80s, I suppose the thoughts may go through people's minds to the degree that they are conscious and aware. And in the last few months, in the last year or so, uh, Mr. Parham was killed in an automobile accident a little more than a year ago over in Dallas. Uh, we've seen Mr. Watkins and his wife and family go over because of the death of his mother. My wife's aunt died recently. Mr. Pope's father up in Oklahoma City, Mr. 
Concerned Fathers, a couple of weeks ago or so, Happy Watkins, who used to sit right here with us all the time in this congregation, I've either had to attend, preach, or have been to any number of funerals in the last few weeks. In some cases, they were more or less expected. In Pappy's case, he had come here to church. He had been in God's church for a couple of decades or so. They had sat and taken notes and lived by, to the best of their human ability, what they'd heard. Very lovable, gentle, quiet, meek little man. If anybody is instantly, upon awakening, going to be in God's kingdom, I would lay your odds, if that's the way we speak about it, that Pappy is going to be there. So perhaps he was ready. I don't think Randy was ready to run into the truck. I don't think his wife was ready for the telephone call that said, Vicky, there's been an accident. And we do not know, in the world in which we live, of machinery, of elevators, of trucks and buses and automobiles and bicycles and motorcycles, of schoolyards, of bullets and knives, of warfare, of bombs and gas, of butane, of kitchen appliances, of apartment fires in Dallas. I mean, it is a world of great complexity, a world of many motorized and mechanized toys, and sometimes those toys betray us, a world of machinery, a world of unexpected surprises. The graveyards are filled with people who had that ultimate surprise, for which there is no preparation. Let's turn to Luke, the 12th chapter, and verse 40. Refresh our minds a little bit. Luke 12 and verse 40. This is the account, Luke's account, of which there is one also in Matthew 24, verse 44. He said in verse 36, And you yourselves should be, he talks in verse 35, about having your loins girded up, so I'll read from there. Let your loins be girded about. Now, that's a metaphor. In those days, when you were about to run, you were wearing something that was akin to like a, a kilt or a short skirt. You gathered up the skirt portion of the garment, you tucked it into the thick belt, the leathern girdle around your waist, and your legs were now exposed and you could run. So it was like saying, have on a pair of gym shorts and your tennis shoes. And your light's burning, meaning you're awake at night. You're not sound asleep in bed. It's a metaphor. And you yourselves, like unto men that wait for their Lord, when he will return from the wedding, and the analogy of a wedding supper was given, that when he comes and knocks, they may open unto him immediately, being ready for his arrival. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes, shall find watching. Now, there's a very interesting expression here and also in Matthew 24 of a church of a group of people who are doing, not a group of people who are not doing. It does not describe a group of people gripped by fear. It does not describe a group of people hiding out. It does describe, in the book of Revelation, as it tells about the great heavenly signs that will cause kings and captains and men of great nobility to say to the rocks of the mountains, fall upon us and hide us from the face of him that sits upon the throne, that unconverted people, people laden with guilt and sins, when they see these shocking occurrences and they know that surely the coming of Jesus Christ is near, that they are gripped with fear. They want to run off and hide. It does not seem to indicate that God's people are gripped with fear and that they are groveling in a cave or under their beds 
But that, they are looking out the window. They have their lamps lit, the lights on, their gym shorts on. They're ready to move. They're ready to go. They are alert. When you're watching, you're reading, you're listening, you're studying, you're looking, studying and looking, you are aware. Blessed are those servants. That certainly includes the church, the servants of Christ, whom when the Lord comes at the time of his arrival, he shall find watching. Verily I say unto you, that he shall gird himself, meaning dress up appropriately for the banquet, and come to sit down to meet, and will come forth and serve them. And once again, Christ is cast in the guise of the server rather than the one who is being served. And if he shall come in the second watch, or come in the third watch, now dividing up the nighttime in periods of watches when the watchman was on the wall of the city, and find them so, Blessed are those servants. That doesn't mean God's people never go to bed again. It is a metaphor. It's talking about the way you live your life week in and week out, month in and month out, whether you drive a motorcycle or a semi-truck, whether you are conveyed to your office a hundred stories up in an elevator, which possibly could collapse and it's been known to happen, or you cross the bight or the bay on a ferry, or whether you go across a bridge a hundred feet above uh, a sound with a ship that might hit the piling. And this know that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched. Now, at my house, I have some things I really don't want stolen. Uh, we all have those things. We might have a television set. I've got a couple of favorite rifles that I would love to be able to go out and use again. I have a shotgun that was given to me by Milt Scott many, many years ago that I prized. Quite a beautiful thing that was a gift that I love to go dove hunting with. I've talked to people who've come home and, home and found their, their homes, I'm sorry, their houses rifled. And it's, it's a, an obnoxious intrusion. If there's anything you hate, I mean, it's bad enough to list your home for sale and let people come snooping around and the looky-loos you think are going through your, your closets, right? That's bad enough. People are in your bedroom, your bathroom looking around. That's where you live. You don't want strangers in there. But if you come home, you've been out to dinner, and you look, and your house is absolutely in chaotic disarray, and you realize some dirty thieves have been in there, and they filled a whole sheet and tied it up, went out and loaded it in the van, your guns are gone, your color TV is gone, your silver is gone, a couple of the best paintings are gone. I mean, that is awful. But if you got wind, somebody gave you a call, gave you a tip, they're going to rip you off at 2.30 a.m., what would you do? Well, I'd have the sheriff there and his car out of sight around a block behind some trees, a couple of deputies. I won't go on about what I might do. I probably would want to do things I shouldn't, but I'd be ready. You know, I'd be sitting in there and in the dark, and I'd have a couple of lumps. I'd make me a couple of dummies in the bed. I'd be over in the corner in the closet with the door open about that wide to the 44 Magnum. Not really, but I mean, just speculating, you know. But if you're waiting for some idiot to come in there and steal everything you got, what would you do about it? Well, you'd be ready. You'd make all kinds of feverish preparation. Call security, call the cops, get ready for him. You might even get yourself a Doberman pincer or maybe even go to the Dallas Zoo and see if you could borrow their gorilla, you know. When they pick him up, first thing they do is pull off his hair because they think he's a banana and they want to peel him. You know, you've heard, you've heard that one. So you would be ready if you knew that something like that was going to happen to you. I get ready for all sorts of things. I have to get ready to come to work. I have to get ready to go to bed. I get ready to play a game of golf. They prepare you for various things they're going to do to you in hospitals. All our lives, we're getting ready for something. 
we get ready to go to dinner. We come home, we get ready to go to bed. But oftentimes when things happen to us all of a sudden, the last thing in the world we are ready for is that total shock, that total surprise. The good man would not have allowed his house to be broken through. Verse 40, Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man comes at an hour when you think not. Now right now, I am guilty of that statement. I don't think he's going to come between now and four o'clock. What if I had a heart attack between now and four o'clock? Well, then that's a different matter. So far as I'm concerned, the Bible tells me this. It says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the change is going to come faster than I can clap my hands together twice. And so far as Randy Payne is concerned, he is at this instant in his consciousness driving along a roadway with which he is very familiar on a rain-slick evening, an overcast night, a week ago Thursday or so, in St. Petersburg, Florida. He sees some dim taillights ahead of him. He looks around, and all of a sudden he looks up, and there, maybe five feet ahead of him, about chest or head high, is the glistening tailgate of a huge semi-truck. He feels nothing. He involuntarily steps on the brake and grabs the handlebar brake. The bike skids sideways. He feels a kind of a thudding something, a noise, a roar. He wakes up. He looks about. It's going to take him a moment to realize he's not lying by the road. He's in the kingdom of God. He's feeling himself wafting up out of a grave. He's looking about. There are others here and there with him. He's seeing a brilliance beyond a thousand suns in the sky, and he feels himself looking at clouds and at angelic beings, hearing the sound of an archangel, sounding like a million trumpets with the Olympic march, and he is being suddenly interrogating his mind, shocked, wondering what's going on, the kingdom must be here, and maybe then, with his wisdom of being made into a spirit being, he will comprehend in the next few seconds or moments or minutes that the kingdom is here. This is Christ's coming, and I'm here. But that's his next thought. He's not conscious of what you're doing here today or me. He's not conscious of all of the years that his young children and his wife, who is now widowed with five kids left behind, are going to have to endure as far as Randy was concerned, he was not ready to die, but he was ready to live. That's a slogan I'd like to leave with. It's not a slogan. Be always ready to live, never ready to die. I'm not certain that there is a time when we're totally ready to die. Now, the Apostle Paul reached the point where he said he was ready to be offered, and I'm not speaking of something of that noble state where a man who was an apostle of God might have actually been a martyr for the cause of Christ, but I'm speaking of people who were taken from their loved ones by accident. Be you therefore ready also, for the Son of Man comes at an hour when you think not. Now, his coming is relative to our lives. I mean, so far as those people who died back in the Revolutionary War of the United States, Christ's coming was a split second, a batting of their eyelash beyond their death. The time lapse between the time when a person dies and the time when Christ comes is utterly nothing. It is zero. There is no time lapse at all. 
Well, Peter came and wanted the, the parable explained. You can read the parallel of that over in Matthew 24 and verse 44. The Apostle Peter was the one responsible for writing of hope. But first of all, I want to show you something over in Hebrews, the second chapter, in verse 15. I have here a Mormon booklet with me. I don't think I'm going to read a lot of it, a lot of it except to explain a couple of points, points of Mormon doctrine about pre-mortal life and about baptism for the dead and why it is that many people come up with an idea of having existed eternally in the past and that human life is only a transitory manifestation of a former spirit life which is then just going to go on into another era or phase of a continuous life. And there are oriental religions which believe this and certain people in the western world who believe it and the Mormons certainly do believe it. In verse 15 of the second chapter of Hebrews, you read about, and you have to read up to it to understand it in verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, Christ, also himself, took part likewise of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, the Mormon doctrine is a study in how it was that a very powerful man could read the scriptures inaccurately, leap to some conclusions, look for some proof texts, decide to preach those conclusions to other people, and eventually gain a following not because of certain things he believed necessarily, but by power and force of personality, by his claims of the mysterious plates that he'd seen, by visions of the angel Moroni. And finally then, the catalyst that welded it all together was his death. And following that, the horrible persecutions of the people who followed Joseph Smith. If there was anything that proved to those people as they were driven from the Midwest out to the Rocky Mountains as they were slain, jailed, and shot, it was that Joseph Smith is right and the Mormon doctrine is vindicated because, you see, persecution is the catalyst that entrenches very deeply the feelings of righteousness, of self-worth. People do not die for a doctrine or a concept or a religion of which they're not convinced. And once they have martyrs, it, it doubly, trebly reinforces the belief and the conviction of other people who come along to follow after. So those who followed this man believed in pre-mortal life, and because of the innate desire of we human beings to come to a feeling of self-worth, of self-confidence, of faith in the future, and to overcome fear of death, fear of accident, fear of injury, fear of loss of life, of leaving our loved ones, or of having them leave us. I think I would fear the latter more than the former. I think obviously most of us with families, close loved ones, would fear losing one of them more than we fear something happening to ourselves. Because the alternative of remaining behind without them around anymore is far more horrible than something that could happen in an instant of which we're unaware. And surely our prayers should be for Vicki and her children, as in the case of all of those who have lost loved ones. It's for the living because the dead are safe. 
They are beyond the need of prayer. All the prayers that, that took place before for the people who were living and are now dead are a fait accompli. You see, hope is alive, but yet hope is buried in the grave just as surely as the best suit that the wife takes down to the funeral parlor and said, here, I would like him to be buried in this. And as surely as he lies there in his best suit, so hope is buried with him. It is there. It remains tangible because he is buried in hope. He is buried having had and possessed hope in his mind and his heart. He is buried in the hope of the resurrection of the dead, and that hope will never fail him. Now, that hope is no more available to him to toy with. He can't take it out and look at it. He can't wonder about it. He can't guess about it. He can't uh, play with it anymore. He can't do like some of us are tempted to do when we're living human beings. He can't become fearful. He can't worry. He can't become concerned. Uh, am I right with God? Will I really make it? Now hope is secure. It's there. It's already over. It's a fait accompli. It is in the grave. And surely, if the Apostle Paul himself said, and I could quote his words, I count not myself to have apprehended. And every one of us disagree. See, Paul was just like we are. If I look at the Apostle Paul writing the letter to the Philippian church, I surely count him to have apprehended. I say, here was a man, because of the change that took place in his life, because of the conversion that totally changed his personality and his character, who certainly was headed for God's kingdom. But Paul, Powerful minister that he was, apostle of God that he was, writing 14 books of the Bible, said to the people, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do for to getting those things which are in the past, I press forward for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So he said, I don't count myself to have apprehended at that phase of his life. But I think we would, as I said, disagree with him. We would count him to have apprehended. I think any one of us could have our doubts right now. We could take out our hope and look at it and wonder about it and maybe assess it, appraise it, worry about it a little. Do I have solid hope? Am I absolutely convinced? Is my life absolutely certain and secure for the kingdom of God? But once we're dead, hope is sure. No, I don't think I'm ready to die. I don't ride motorcycles. I'm not about to begin. Uh, I, I hate the things, as far as I'm concerned. I don't want anything to do with them. But yet, I read this scripture about how Jesus Christ, in a sense, overcame death itself, conquering Shaman, or Samhain, the Lord of the dead, which was Satan the devil's bizarre masquerade as the one who had the power over all of death, because Christ descended into the tomb and then was resurrected out of the tomb, thus replacing and removing the devil, and delivered, verse 15, those who... Fear of death, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Can you imagine the bondage that is evident in religion? Thinking for a moment about the incredible difference between the Roman Catholic Church in the United States and the Catholic Church in Mexico, where the ladies that I've talked about walk five miles on their knees into the Basilica of the Virgin of Guadalupe, leaving a trail of blood, because in penance for sins and atonement for deeds done in their body, they wish to have a relative or a baby or someone healed. There is a great deal of bondage in the Orient, in India. Does God want people to sit 
on beds of coals or to lie on beds of nails or to stare at the sun until they go blind? Does he want people to live in rigorous custom, abandoning even some of the modern conveniences, going about with black beaver hats and horse-drawn buggies? Does he really want people to undergo the most rigorous restrictions of diet and dress and personal habit or to shun a member of their own family pretending that they're non-existent because of this very doctrine, fear of death, and the decision that they, like Joseph Smith and his followers, have discovered the key, the solution, and they alone have the truth. They know how to overcome death, and they can now walk up to death and spit in its eye because I understand that I can't really die. I'm a spirit. I always existed before. I'm here only temporarily, and when the body changes, I'm going to continue to exist. And that's what the Mormons believe. And the whole attempt is the attempt to walk up to death and to spit in its eye. But the artifices of men and the false doctrines of various religions are built around that fear, and unfortunately they oftentimes are built around the need of the minister, the preacher, the practitioner, the seer, the prophet, to control, to subject, to place into bondage, his followers. So there are many people who are the followers of religious leaders who are in bondage today through fear of death. He has the key. They know if they stick to him, they will make it through and they will not have to face death. And that is the way they can overcome their fear. I want you to become a little bit acquainted with some of this. It's quite interesting. There's quite a long booklet here called The Plan of Salvation give you a couple of bits and pieces, and show you reasoning, Joseph Smith's reasoning. Turn to Job 38, verses 2 to 4, and verse 7. They quote this. Speaking to Job, one of the ancient writers of the Bible, God says, quote, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now your loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Where were you? when I laid the foundations of the earth. Does anyone understand that metaphorical statement? When the morning stars sang together, omitting some and going on there, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The Mormon comment in the booklet, quote, Job certainly must have been somewhere when the foundations of the earth were laid. Or why the question? Ah, I see. He says, where were you? Meaning, I know where I was. Bushwa and Pishtwaddle. But a man named Joseph Smith reasoned that way century and a half or whatever ago. Thought, aha, he had to be somewhere or he couldn't ask, where were you? So through all of the years, we come down to a modern 1983 Mormon doctrine on the plan of salvation explaining pre-mortal life, how you were all a spirit, you existed at the time of the foundation of the earth, and now you're in a transitory physical phase, which God gives you an opportunity to learn some things to become a little advanced stage and so on, but it's only a phase. They go on to say, there was doubtless more meaning to the words, italicized, when all the sons of God shouted for joy than one at first supposes. The reader asks, who were these sons of God? Well, of course, most of the Bible helps that you can read 
speaking of angelic beings and of all of the created beings of God, very quickly will tell you that those were angelic creatures, angelic beings who were there and were called the sons of God. They then proof text and talk about people who took the very name of El or Elohim and made it part of their name and were called like Adam, who in Luke 3.38 in the genealogical table of Christ was called Adam, who was the son of God. Therefore, Adam must have been there too, you see. You may not know that Mormons baptize each other, or that is, they can go to a temple. It must be done in a temple where they baptize for the dead. That's because they, like the uh, major Protestants and the Catholics, all believe that Jesus didn't really die, but that Jesus descended into hell during the three days and three nights, which they even take issue with that, the length of time, that he was in the tomb and preached to departed spirits in hell. Now, of course, you know where that is found over in Second Peter. But I want to show you where some of the ideas come from in Mormon doctrine. This on page 12 of the booklet. Man's divine origin is beautifully expressed by Eliza R. Snow in one of the songs of Zion. Now, this is a hymn in the hymn book of the Church of the Latter-day Saints. And I quote, O my Father, thou that dwellest in the high and glorious place, when shall I regain thy presence and again behold thy face? In thy holy habitation did my spirit once reside? In my first primeval childhood was I nurtured near your side? It's good poetry. It rhymes. Good poetry. For a wise and glorious purpose thou hast placed me here on earth and withheld the recollection of my former friends in birth. Oh, then if I existed way back there, but I don't remember anything about it, I now understand because the lady wrote a poem. For a wise and glorious purpose thou hast placed me here on earth, and withheld the recollection of my former friends in birth. Yet oft times a secret something whispered, You're a stranger here. And I felt that I had wandered from a more exalted sphere. And that's the end of the hymn. They sing it. Now the quote from the booklet. This is certainly a grander and nobler conception of man's origin than that of some of the philosophers who advocate the idea that man evolved from a lower scale. We quote a poem, do we? And that becomes support for doctrine of one of the major questions of life. Who and what are we? Where are we going? What is human life all about? Then, with regard to future existence and, inevitably, Christ preaching to the angels or the spirits in hell. I quote from the booklet, After the body of Jesus had lain in the tomb for three days, the spirit again entered into his body. The angels rolled the stone away from the mouth of the sepulcher, and the resurrected Redeemer of the world walked forth, clothed with an immortal body of flesh and bones. No, you see, now there's a little error there. Did anybody catch the error? Was the stone rolled away to let Christ out? No. stone was rolled away to let the world look in. Christ didn't need a stone to be rolled away. He just walked through solid rock. Some hours earlier, Mary Magdalene, who seemed to have some special interest in the Savior, came early to the tomb and, weeping, discovered that the body of the Master was not there. I take issue with that kind of writing. You know, I... I question certain authors. I don't know what in the world they're driving at. Mary Magdalene 
who seemed to have some special interest in the Savior. That's one of two things. It's either implication something was going on between Jesus and Mary, or else it's just filler material. doesn't need to be put there. could be just said, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb. Anyway, uh, that's just my general reservation when I read other people's writing. A voice spake to her and said, Mary. She turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus said unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father, and to your Father, and to my God, and your God. John 20, 16-17. Here, Jesus has declared that during the three days immediately subsequent to his crucifixion, while his body lay in the tomb, his spirit did not go into heaven nor to the presence of his Father. Logically, it must follow that neither did the thief's spirit. The generally accepted idea, therefore, of the thief being saved must inevitably fall. Jesus asserted that today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And again, they missed the point, the placement of the comma, that it was a point that he will eventually be in paradise, but when will paradise come? And, and there's a picture of the three thieves and Christ, the way they view him. Upon his return to earth, he informed Mary that he had not ascended to his father. The question naturally arises, where had he been during these three days? The Bible tells me when I read in Revelation 1, Behold, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I am he that liveth and was dead. But I found people in the Church of God International that refused to believe that statement. They refused to believe that a member of the God family could be changed into human flesh and that that flesh which he then became could die. And that Almighty God, through the power that is such boundless power, could resurrect Jesus Christ of Nazareth from the dead, which the Bible says over and over and over again, and people refuse to believe it, and it finally makes me understand more than I ever had that the spirit of Antichrist is he who refuses to say Christ is come in the flesh. Not only is coming, but did once come. I think both may be applied. Yes, Christ may live his life over again within us, but he was flesh, he was human, he was physical, he was changed into a human body. The question naturally arises, where had he been during these three days? We are not left in doubt upon this point. Scripture plainly points out the character, the duties he was called upon to perform while his body rested in peace in the newly made tomb of Joseph. He was busy, so he was alive, right? Jesus had transferred the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter. Now, I was a little amazed at that. I really honestly didn't know until I read that that the Mormons believed that Jesus assigned Peter as the head of the twelve. But when I stopped to think about Mormon hierarchical church organization and their concept of one prophet, I can see why they almost must adopt the Catholic doctrine of the primacy of Peter. He would certainly be accepted as a competent witness, a competent witness meaning Peter, in this matter. And then he quotes verse 18 and 19 of 1 Peter 3, for Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. They don't even read that one correctly. Put to death, but quickened by the Spirit. By the agency of the Spirit, he was enlivened, but for three days and three nights he was dead. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. I've explained that in laborious detail 
It is available in a tape in which I waited all the way through. What does it mean? And I think it was a sermonette, as I recall, uh, some years ago. If you want a copy of that, you can certainly have it, but it is completely explained and expounded. Here we have an account of what Christ was doing during the three days' absence from the body, preaching in the spirit world. We also have a clear explanation as to where the thief went. It was to a spirit prison where he would have an opportunity to hear the gospel of deliverance preached. Oh. To the captive spirits which were sometimes disobedient. Is that what Jesus did? Now, if we turn to this scripture in 1 Peter 3, and let's do that at this point in time, I want to show you something. We'll read beginning in verse 18. For Christ also was once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in Tartaru, the only place in the Bible where that Greek word is used, which is sometimes translated, and I believe the Rans Dawe puts the word hell there, which sometime were disobedient. All right, let's understand English. If I had a blackboard, I could diagram it. Question. Which spirits? The spirits which sometime were disobedient. When were they disobedient? When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah? No, that's not what it is saying. It is saying, when did Jesus do the preaching? While he was in the grave, dead during the three days and three nights? Or during the great flood, which is typical of the coming destruction of the earth by fire, in which all the works of the earth will be burnt up, and of course the latter is true, in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, beings, lives, were saved by water. I want to take issue with the word preaching, verse 19. Now I have here the companion Bible, and I brought it for a purpose today because it has a very, very fine series of appendices. And I go back, I'm in the margin told to look at Appendix 121, Section 1. Here it gives every one of the synonymous words used in the New Testament for the word to preach. Number one, caruso, to proclaim as a herald. From carux, a herald, without reference to the matter being proclaimed and without including the idea of teaching. And that is the word used in this verse, in this version or this verse. What was it that he was doing according to the Mormon doctrine? He was preaching the gospel of deliverance. But the Bible says he taught or he heralded. He announced something. Let's go on and read the others real quickly. Karuks, the root from which Caruso comes, a herald. Number three, Karugma, also from the same root, that which is proclaimed, the message proclaimed. Number four, the one most commonly used, Evangelizo, to announce a joyful message to evangelize, having regard to the matter announced, not the manner, which is contained in number one. Catagello, to bring down word to anyone, bring it home by setting it forth, emphasizing or driving home a point. Diangelo, to make known, so an intermediate space, report further, that is by spreading it far and wide. Ialio, to talk or use the voice without reference to the word spoken. Dialegomai, from which we take dialogue, to speak to and fro alternately or to converse. Dialogue comes from that. Akoi, 
merely hearing or standing for that which is heard. And logos, the word spoken, as by a means or instrument, not as a product, or the expression by the vehicle of speech. So here we have every one of the synonymous words used in the New Testament in the Greek language for preach, and the word that is used in 1 Peter 3 and verse 19, by which he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, is number one, caruso, which is to proclaim as a herald without reference to the matter being proclaimed. He went and he made a stentorian announcement. But by no means did he, as the booklet says here, preach the gospel of deliverance. So there again, fear of death, a desire to find human worth, self-confidence, to have faith, to have hope, to overcome the fear of death, which is a black void, and the way certain doctrines became deeply entrenched in the minds of one man because of a basic false premise. And then, of course, they go on to give supporting text about the prisoners going forth and so on, and long-suffering spirits held in confinement. I want to read a little bit of that. How appropriately do these passages coincide with and support the assertion of Peter relative to Jesus' preaching in the spirit world? These were men who in the days of the flood failed to obey the commandments of God and for 2,000 years had suffered the penalty of their wrongdoing and who had been fulfilling the principle so clearly enunciated by our Savior when he said, Verily I say unto thee, You shall by no means come out thence till you have paid the uttermost farthing. This is so close to Catholic purgatory, I didn't really honestly know that the Mormons believe this particular doctrine just that way. I thought I knew a little bit about Mormon doctrine, but I didn't know this. And then they go on about many stripes as opposed to few stripes and say this, These long-suffering spirits who had been held in confinement must have received with great joy the everlasting gospel. Through the gospel, the prison doors could be opened and the obedient spirits could be delivered from the grasp of Lucifer, the son of the morning, who is appropriately described as one who makes the earth to tremble, etc., etc. So that is the idea having to do with what Jesus did during the time in the tomb and it completely negating what Christ himself said about the resurrection of the dead. Now, with regard to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 29, I want to turn to that because that's one of the most important doctrines of the Mormon religion, and it has to do with being baptized for the dead. And once again, it is merely a misunderstanding of a word, one word. Under their section, Salvation for the Dead, and they have here a picture of a baptismal font at the temple in Washington, D.C., which is symbolically held up by cherubim, by oxen. And then it appears to be a kind of a huge clamshell and they mount up the stairs over the oxen or the carabim, and they are, they, you know, you can go, if you're a Mormon, and you can be baptized. You can go look up records, I guess, get yourself an almanac or a history book. You can find somebody, and you're not sure they were a Mormon or converted. You can go and get baptized for them. And it's like you can be a, a surrogate. And by yourself being baptized, that baptizes on their behalf. So even though they're dead, you can baptize them because you see their spirit's in prison right now, and they haven't been baptized. So that's the way they justify it. And in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 29, it says this, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Then why are they baptized for the dead? 
Now, taken out of its context and reading it that way, that sounds like somebody is being baptized for the dead. But what is the context here? It certainly applies to all of our own beloved friends, family members, a minister, and brethren who have died recently. And let's begin reading in verse 19, because these were the words Mr. Kimbrough read at that funeral service just one week ago today. If in this life only we have hope, oh, well, then hope can go with us into the grave. It can survive while our bodies do not. If in this life, while we're alive, while we are ambient and we are a human transitory creature, we have a, an awareness, we are intelligent, we're moving about on this earth, we have hope in our hearts. If that's all, if there is no hope once we're gone, if we leave it behind like our loved ones when we die, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by or through man came death, by or through man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, because Adam was dust, and under the dust he shall return, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Not a state that they have while they're dead, but a state they will eventually attain. But every man in his own order. And none of the churches believe these simple scriptures. Christ the first fruits. They don't understand that. What does it mean being the first fruits that are dead? Afterward, not now, not yesterday, not last week when Randy died or a few weeks before, when some of the other people here died, afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. And as I've said for years, not one second before. Then comes the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule, until he has put all enemies under his feet. Now, I imagine that everybody has enemies. I certainly got a lot of them. I don't have any enemies that they are my enemies. I mean, I don't go around thinking he's my enemy, she's my enemy. They think that they hate me. It's all on their part, one way, headed in my direction. I don't worry about it because that's not my problem. I don't have enemies except those who think that they are my enemies, if you follow me. But you know, Randy had to have some enemies somewhere in his communication with people in the business world. But the most hated enemy of Mrs. Vicki Payne is the dirty, rotten, dreaded, filthy, unexpected, horrendous, shocking, ghastly enemy of sudden death, taking a human being that isn't built to withstand that kind of a sudden stop against metal and taking that young life away so that instead of a normal workaday routine, he was expected home in a few more minutes. And everything in his study, the tape that he'd last been listening to, the piece of paper, just the way he left it. You know the way people go through those things. They go into the closet. There's a, there, there, there's a sock there and a shoe, exactly the way he left it. A wife has to go through, sort through clothing and neckties and every garment she picks up, every piece of paper, the way he left it on a desk, is another wrenching at the heart. That's what happens when someone is taken so shockingly and so suddenly. It's a hated enemy. Christ has destroyed it. He has absolutely obliterated death, except that for a short duration of time, 
we are still, humanly, susceptible. Then comes the end when he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must rule or reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Remember it says in the book of Revelation, neither shall they die any more. It talks about every tear shall be wiped away and there shall be no more death. The most hated thing in life is death. It's worse than amputation. I guess there's some things we could say a state of being, you know, but do I get into the macabre or the gross that is almost like a state worse than death where someone is like a vegetable or like the poor uh, woman, uh, you know, your heart goes out to her that was trying to get the hospital to cooperate and allowing herself to starve to death because obviously she'd gone through a marriage and she was a hopeless paraplegic and that marriage blew up and you all know what that had to be like to her and why, therefore, I've forgotten her name, but it was a national case. It was on the evening news and so on here recently. Pitiful thing. Terrible, terrible thing. But the most hated enemy of all is death. For he has put all things under his feet, verse 27. But when he says all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, meaning Christ, which did put all things under him, Christ and God the Father, and when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be everything, everywhere, all in all. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead don't rise, why are they then baptized for the dead, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Why are we still vulnerable? Why are we standing out here as a human being susceptible to an arrow or a spear or to an accident, to flame or a fall? I protest by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily if after the manner of men. What's he talking about? I fought with beasts at Ephesus, and he did, and he fought. Think about it. Paul went into the arena, a big arena in Ephesus. They probably handed him a, a sword or a trident, and they turned the lions loose. God was with him. We have little here. We don't know exactly what kind of beast. It could have been wild bulls or a combination of several, but the plural is used, beasts. He was thrown into a Roman arena, and he fought with beasts at Ephesus, and he survived. He wanted to live. He called upon God and whatever they gave him, maybe a Roman short sword, he prevailed. He said, why did I do this? What does it advantage me if the dead rise not? Let's eat and drink tomorrow we die. Let's all live like the people do in their riotous orgies in Rome because what good does it do us? Tomorrow we're all going to die anyway. What is the subject here? It is continually... Accepting Christ's promise, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, that the church is a constantly renewing generation of young people growing up, of new converts, of new people being baptized. Else why are they baptized? To do what? To fill up the place of the dead. When Pappy died, we had an extra chair in the room. If a new member is baptized, he sits in that chair. The Greek word is huper, H-U-P-E-R, and it means to fill up the place of, to replace a dead person. Why should the church as a living, viable organism 
down through the centuries, continue to baptize. Why not just let the first generation die out and forget it, if there is no resurrection of the dead? This is not talking about somebody wading into a baptismal font, being dunked in the water for a human being they never even knew. It's talking about the regular daily, monthly baptism of brand new converts to fill up the place of an older generation who eventually would die out. And if there were no new converts, the church would simply cease to exist. The Greek word, H-U-P-E-R, you may look it up, means to fill up the place of the dead. And that is explained right here. By the way, uh, let me just read, if I can, the, the Companion Bible uh, marginal reference. Why are they baptized for the dead, etc.? Read, why are they baptized also? It is for, or on behalf, not on behalf of, it is for the dead. It is to remain dead as Christ remains if there be no resurrection. The argument is, what is the use of being baptized if it is only to remain dead? No suggestion here of the various baptisms which sprang up later among the Marconianites and others. Now, they must have been an early version of the Mormon church. I don't know. I never heard of them before either. But that is the meaning of that scripture, and that is what the Mormon doctrine has. There are a couple of other things that I think are not necessary, but it talks also about eternal punishment, and that any punishment from God, since God is eternal, is eternal punishment, and they get around the idea of their brief purgatory by that explanation in this Mormon booklet on the plan of salvation that I had never really seen before. Let's go to 1 Peter the first chapter, you know that in the writing of these major epistles following the book of Hebrews, they are in exactly the same order as the so-called three graces. James comes first, and the theme of James is faith. Look at the second and the third chapters. Show me your works without your faith, and I will show you my faith by my works, etc. Faith without works is dead. Peter writes about hope, and then John, you know the emphasis all the way through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is on love. So faith, hope, and love, even the order of the books and the order in which they're contained in the Bible, have to do with those three graces. Chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace be unto you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. Interesting, that word is used here. The Greek is ganao, has begotten us again. As Christ said in John the third chapter, you must be begotten or born again, born from above, unto a lively hope. Bullinger has a note in the margin. Lively means living, the hope of living again because it is by his resurrection. A living hope or the hope of living again by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away. Many people are heirs. They inherit when a loved one dies. Stocks, bonds, properties, certain amount of money in the bank. But that is consumed, and gradually it fades away, and eventually it is gone. Sometimes an insurance policy 
Sometimes the insurance people, as we've been talking about lately, will almost get there before the ambulance uh, turns off its siren and say, oh, could we offer you five or ten or twenty thousand dollars because they know maybe a several million dollar liability lawsuit is pending. But you know, very quickly those fade away. Not this uncorruptible inheritance, undefiled, that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, but is going to come down out of heaven with Christ when he comes, who are kept, now think of those words, by the power of God, through faith, unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I have a little tiny bar of silver. It's about as big, well, it's smaller than half of that glass case. I know where it is, because Benny had a couple of pieces of junk gold, and I, matter of fact, I swapped off a couple of ex-old beat-up cufflinks that are long since gone, and he had one of these little black drawers down here at one of the banks in town. I think it's the Rose Capital, I'm not sure. He rented a little deal, I think it's only about 12 bucks a year. You can get a safety deposit vault. It's being kept. Now, I imagine that little piece of silver is still down there. I think it's worth probably about $60 now. I'm really, really got me a fortune stashed away. I've noticed silver's gone down. I think it was worth about 18 when I put it in there. It's worth about 8 now, so I may as well get it out and throw it away. Anyway, I'm thinking about the way we put things away for safekeeping. We want a bank guard with a gun on his hip and somebody with two keys and a lady there who won't let you in without identification at certain times of the time lock on the vault to take you in to visit your safety deposit box. Well, this talks about we human beings, our bodies, no matter what happens to us, by accident, by sickness, or old age, being kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, it was absolutely heartbreaking to be there in that windswept, chilly uh, cemetery down there in St. Petersburg and see that young widow now of just a few hours, the knowledge that her husband isn't coming home, with her little children, the one little boy, crying and uncomfortable and not knowing what in the world was going on. It took me back to the first funeral I ever saw, my grandfather, when I was five, of looking down in, as this little boy wanted to do, to the hole where he didn't have the faintest idea what was happening. A year and a half, how could he? But there was a casket, and in it was the body of that little person's father. And she had to go with the rest of us and drive out of that graveyard, and there was a young man who only two and a half, three days before, she had expected home from work. Well, he's kept through faith by the power of God unto a resurrection. If we can't believe that, if that cannot remove from our minds the darkness of superstition, fear, the willingness to submit or to subject ourselves to, to total bondage into the hand of some would-be autocratic guru somewhere, then what can give us freedom? The knowledge through the Spirit of God that can come into our minds is a knowledge that I would submit to you, even in a time of terrible trial for Vicki Payne, nevertheless puts her yards ahead of 99 and 4400 percent of the rest of the human beings in this world, including the sisters and mothers of those young Marines who were blown up in Lebanon, of knowing what it's all about and knowing what's going to happen next. The big problems that she has in her mind are not 
Where is Randy? You see what I mean? Where is he going to be? That's not a problem to her. Think of what that means. Yes, she's got a problem. How do I support the kids? What about the house? Where do I go from here? I've still got to live life. I've got these responsibilities. That's her problem. But not, what about Randy? Where is Randy? Will I ever see him again? Where did he go? Was he there hovering over the coffin? Shall I go and talk to him beneath the flowers? You see what I mean? She has that knowledge. How do you put a price tag on that? The knowledge that Jesus Christ of Nazareth died for all of us and that we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So no wonder it talks about the trial of our faith being more precious of gold that perishes. And finally, over here in 1 Peter the 3rd, I'm sorry, 1 Peter the 4th chapter, beginning to read in verse 7. But the end of all things, including this sermon, is at hand. Be you therefore sober and watch unto prayer, and above everything, putting this above everything else in your life, have fervent love. Charity is a forgiving love. It's a generous love. It's an outgoing love among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Be a good person, a loving person, a forgiving person, a kind, ebullient, zestful, happy, caring person. Above everything, Peter says, do that. Be that way. If you are, you're always ready to live. You may never be ready to die. You may never be ready for the accident which takes the next one of us away from the rest of us for a certain period of time. But you will be ready for eternal life. If you put that first in your life, charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man has received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, has something to say, talks, chats, visits, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, as Randy was doing, giving, not only of his cash and his income, but of his time as a minister of Jesus Christ for that group of people down there, if any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God gives, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom to be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, you won't see Randy Payne's cheerful face over there uh, with his big set of audio equipment which he bought and brought and took over and volunteered to run the sound system every year from Jekyll Island in 78 to Guntersville last year. I won't be able to stand and, and sing with him this next year with him playing his guitar, which he was excellent at, like I did one year down at St. Pete. And he won't be coming home with that young family anymore for the next some years. But so far as where Randy is going to be, and the next time I'm going to see him and Vicky and those kids, I know exactly what the setting is going to be. I don't know exactly when, but I know that he is secure. And I hope that all of you will remember and think about her. Remember to pray for her and those children and their needs. And I know that the entire heart of the Church of God International goes out to them in this time.